Getting In is sponsored by Audible.com. Audible.com has more than 180,000 audiobooks and spoken word products. Just for being a Getting In listener, you can get a free audiobook of your choice by going to www.audible.com slash college. From Slate and Panoply, this is Getting In, a podcast series about the path to college. I'm your host, Julie Lifcott-Hames, and today I'm delighted Getting In expert Park Muth is back with me again to answer more of your listener questions. Hi, Park. Hi, Julie. As listeners will remember, Park spent nearly 30 years as a dean and an admissions officer at the University of Virginia, and he's now a private consultant who helps students and families through the admissions process. So, Park, let's get right to the listener questions. We got this email from Dan Colbert, a dad in Maine. I found your podcast because I'm the father of a high school senior, but I'm writing today because I'm on the advisory board of our local regional vocational high school. We're having a hard time getting the right students into the program. Very few of them end up working in the trades they study at school. I'm trying to work on recruitment, and one of the questions I'm expecting from parents and guidance counselors is, how does attending vocational school affect my students' chances of getting into college? Hmm, really interesting question. Park, what do you think? The first thing I'll say is I would want to find out why this particular vocational program is having a hard time getting the right students in the program. I mean, the articles that I'm reading and the things that I'm seeing from many educators is that there should be many more students considering vocational schools. You know, there are people that can go into air conditioning repair or plumbing and other things, and they're earning a lot more money than teachers. These are professions that are not going to be outsourced to robots in the next 10 or 20 years, whereas some other things probably will. So I would wonder why the students who are pursuing these aren't ending up going in because there are not enough people going into the trades these days. We have a lot more people going to traditional four-year colleges. We don't have enough students who are going into the vocational programs. How does attending a vocational school affect my students' chances of getting into a college? Well, it's going to depend on what kind of college the student wants to get into. I mean, if they want to get into a highly selective college or university, attending a vocational school is probably going to hurt their chances significantly. If they're going to go to a much less selective school, it could be anything from a community college to a relatively non-selective college, then going to a vocational school but still taking courses that some of the schools may require should not hurt the students' chances of admission. So I would encourage you to make sure what are the long-term goals of the student. And if they say, well, you know, I want to be a scientist, then going to a, into a vocational school is probably going to hurt their chances. So I think it's a matter of matching the student's interests and backgrounds with whether a vocational school will help them reach those goals. Okay, thanks. Now let's turn to this voicemail from Brenda, a mom on Long Island. Hi, my name is Brenda. I am a mother of a junior in Long Island, New York. She's a very bright girl. We're looking into a variety of colleges. She tends to veer a little towards great obsession, and one of the colleges we've been looking at is the new college of Florida, which does not really have a standard grading program. I'm just curious, how does that work in the real world? Because while I think the idea of her going to college where she could just learn for the sake of learning and not worry about her grades would be a wonderful thing for her, what happens when she graduates? Thank you very much. 
Park, what do you think? What can you tell us about New College of Florida or really the the concept of colleges not having a standard grading program? How can uh, Brenda and other parents evaluate whether they should be concerned about that in terms of preparing a student well for the quote-unquote real world? Well, the first thing I'll say is I think a week or two ago, Harvard has decided that the first year is not going to be graded. So it's not just the New College of Florida. And there are a number of schools that have instituted no grades, perhaps for different reasons, but part of it is to get students to take the courses that they really want to take. I mean, professors are saying again and again that students are coming in and they're afraid to take risks. They want to go in and know that they can get an A in the class if they're going to take the class. So a place like the new college is offering the opportunity for students to really do what education should be. They can experiment with things, and they can even fail at things. In some ways, there are many, many people in business and politics and every other profession that will say, you've got to learn from failure if you're always playing it safe. Now, by failing, I don't necessarily mean you're getting a zero in the class, but maybe you're just not going to be near the top. And the new college of Florida, and and there are some other schools like this, are emphasizing that you're going to have experiential learning. You're going to be learning in ways that are particular to you. Now, could that hurt you when you graduate? Well, I guess it in part depends on what you're hoping to do. As with many colleges and universities, if you are planning on staying in Florida, they have already hired people from the new College of Florida, and they have a better sense of the kinds of students they're getting. There may be some other areas around the U.S. that would have some concerns, but if you can present yourself in a way where you go in an interview and you just have a fabulous interview and you've taken things like GREs or you've taken other things that could get you into graduate school or be a part of a case study and some other professions you might be interested in. All those things can help you. So there's part of me that says it's a, it's a great idea, and I, I wish there would be more opportunities for students out there to do it. But realistically, it could limit some of the opportunities after graduation. Yeah, I think it's a question of how much work is the employer willing to do. I think um, many employers know that a grade isn't a proxy for what a human can do in the workplace. And if they've got, you know, a process set up to interview candidates and can have thoughtful conversations in the interview uh, with a candidate, you can learn so much more about a human in you know, person-to-person contact than you can from their transcript. What we're hoping to produce is young people who are passionate about their interests. And so, you know, a school that doesn't have a standard grading rubric is still evaluating students. It's still coming up with some way to um, describe their degree of effort and accomplishment. And I'm imagining that young person is going to end up being quite capable of narrating to their own interests because they've experienced that at the college level and will probably make a great interviewee. So, you know, my sense is that's a school's approach. It's a new approach. There are a lot of high schools that are increasingly bringing that approach to their grading rubric. So in some ways, this is a, a really a turn for the toward the positive uh, in how we 
assess and evaluate humans. And my sense is if, if this is the right school for Brenda's kid, don't let the grading rubric stand in the way of uh, your sense that it might be the perfect fit. Okay, Park, um, we've been hearing from listeners asking for advice about transferring out of community college to a four-year school. Megan Jacobson teaches chemistry at a community college in Twin Falls, Idaho, and she sent us this voice memo. I teach at one of the three community colleges in Idaho and can use advice in helping our students to select and apply to a school as a transfer student. I know that that process differs somewhat from applying as an incoming freshman straight from high school. Many of my students are first-generation college students. Most of them are older, non-traditional students. Some have spouses and or children. Even if they're young, their parents aren't likely to be helping them to pay for school. My students have jobs, often full-time, rather than a full slate of extracurricular activities. Nearly all of the people that my students know who went to college went to one of a small handful of schools. So finding the right fit is a totally new concept. Because the area isn't densely populated, it can be difficult for them to find someone who works in a field that they're interested in to get research or volunteer experience to see if that's really what you want to do. The idea of leaving the state, even to one that borders Idaho, to go to school is daunting. Out-of-state tuition is even more daunting. Could you provide some transfer-specific wisdom and resources? My students have such great potential. They just need a little bit of extra help to achieve their goals. Thank you. Beautiful question, Megan. Thank you. Park, what advice do you have for Megan and community college students looking to transfer? One of the things I would encourage her or officials at her community college is to reach out to a number of schools, both within the state and proximate to the state, to come in and talk to the students. Because she's raised a number of specific things. It's going to be hard for some of these people to even visit some of the other schools because they're working full-time and they have families and they have all these other things. But I think there would be educators from colleges and universities who would very much like to come and talk to those students about some of the options. And it sounds like a number of these students are reticent to move far. It could be family reasons or others. I think bringing in people from some of these other schools who are encouraging and supportive and can say what they need to do and how their lives can change from going and finishing at a four-year institution would benefit everybody. Yeah, you know, I remember at Stanford, we were thrilled to have in our transfer student population these quote-unquote non-traditional students who had a bit longer of a life path and uh, more to say about themselves and about what they wanted out of life. And we're even more certain that a four-year school place like Stanford was where they wanted to be because they just lived enough of life to to know themselves uh, that much better. Um the additional advice I just offer is, you know, do you have alums from your school who have gone on to transfer to a four-year program outside of the state who might be enticed to come back or when they do come back through the area, you know, have them come participate in a in an evening event or a lunch, brown bag lunch, where they can talk about their journey? I think 
that narrative about the personal journey, I'm from here and I did it, so can you, that is, I think, probably the most valuable piece of inspiration your current students can find, those who are a little ahead of them on the path who've successfully done it. Also, Megan, if you have a sense of there are some schools, they've been really great partners with you, they've admitted your students, students have thrived there, you know, there may be two or three schools that come to mind as I say this, whether they're in Idaho or a bordering state. See if you can get one of them to travel to visit your school um, the next time they're on the road and uh, and have them make a pitch to your students that, hey, students from this place thrive at my place. And, you know, that, that Im- implicit encouragement from the other institution that your students belong there would, I think, go a long way toward helping your students feel like, yeah, maybe I can make that leap. Maybe I can go there. All right, Park. Well, thank you so much for joining me today. Well, it's been great to be here, Julie. Listeners, we love hearing your questions and comments, so please do send us your voice memos. You know I like to hear your voice. And you can send emails as well. Both of these can come to gettingin at slate.com. You can leave a voicemail on our hotline. That number is 929-999-4353. And you can find us on Twitter. Our handle is gettinginpod. That's all one word, gettinginpod. And if you can, please leave us a comment on iTunes because it helps other people discover our show. Getting In is a production of Slate and Panoply Media. Michelle Siegel is our producer. Our executive producer is Laura Mayer. And Panoply's chief content officer is Andy Bowers. Thanks so much for listening. I'm Julie Lithcott-Hames. And remember, it's not just about getting in. It's about finding the right fit. Getting In is sponsored by Audible.com. Audible has more than 180,000 audiobooks. You can download them and access them on a bunch of different devices, on iPhones, Android, Kindle, or pretty much any other MP3 player. One book you can try out from Audible is How to Have a Good Day. Harness the power of behavioral science to transform your working life. Author Caroline Webb translates three big scientific ideas into step-by-step guidance that shows us how to set better priorities, make our time go further, ace every interaction, be resilient to setbacks, and boost our energy and enjoyment. If you want to listen to How to Have a Good Day or many other books, Audible has it. Get a free audiobook and 30-day trial today by signing up at www.audible.com college.